Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. So nice to be with you. You're really getting like a, a sampling of all different Bethany things. We have Kendi here. We have Bill here. Now you have another face with me here. Um, so let me give you a little context. My name is Nathan Nelson. I'm the pastor of mission and outreach at Bethany. So I get to oversee the work that we do in mission globally as well as locally. So um, you might recall here at Northeast, you have had these things called good neighbor teams in the past. Resettling refugee families, volunteers have stepped up to play integral roles in that. Um, so that's some of the work that I do. Um, I also also, uh, just to make some connections to you all as the Northeast community, um, before Silas, there was a man by the name of Jack Brace. Jack Brace and I used to work in mission together at Bethany. And um, there was this gentleman by the name of Andrew Platter. Do we remember this guy? We remember him fondly, right? I started as an intern when he was also an intern, and he was given a job before I was. And so I remember thinking, oh, baby, they're going fast. I hope I can get one of those too. Um, Yeah, so anyway, a lot of fun. You guys have really been blessed with some amazing folks in leadership here on staff, and that's going to be absolutely true of Silas. Um, It's appropriate in some ways that we have a a collection of different Bethany people here on Silas's quote-unquote coronation day, if you will, in part because it's true. The influence of Silas cannot be, though it's immense here at the Northeast community alone, it can't be contained here alone. I think Kendi and I would both agree He is one who truly blesses all of Bethany and its six unique locations. He has this incredible intellect, as all of you know, you know, the many gifts that you see on display all the time, but he and I have sort of developed a friendship, and I've just been so personally blessed by him. So it's just a privilege to get to be here and celebrate him today. Um, Silas and I's friendship started with the celebration of uh, the, the victorious reign of his favorite NBA team. And the demise that continues of my favorite NBA team. So there's that too. But brother, thank you again for the invitation and and just glad to be here with y'all. We are continuing, friends, in a series that is called Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. So in this series, each week we're looking at a different stanza of the Lord's Prayer. uh, Last week we looked at our God in heaven holy is your name. And I understand uh, that Silas really focused in on this notion of our father. That sort of pronoun, our, possessive pronoun, I think, um, is significant, super significant. And it sets up beautifully the message for today. And that is going to be around this second stanza of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's an outline for you that's going to help structure our time together. And so what I'd like to sort of do is invite us to consider this second stanza of the Lord's Prayer in three parts. The first part is, your kingdom come. Second part, on earth. And then the third part, as it is in heaven. So your kingdom come, oh, excuse me, I said that wrong. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the second part. The third part, on earth as it is in heaven. And then connected to each of these um, pieces of this second stanza uh, are parts to a, a phrase. And this phrase seeks to sort of capture the meaning of this prayer for all of us. And so the, that's that, we're going to piece that together. It starts with shalom, be made a reality, and then in our midst. So that's where we're headed. Um, if you would, pray with me, uh, and we'll get started from there. 
Lord, we do. We thank you for the invitation to pray, to interact with you, our God. I think we take that for granted. I take that for granted for sure. Lord, many folks around the world strive to understand their place in the world and uh, in the various faith systems that people find themselves in. Lord, uh, there's a hunger for you, and yet you remain far off. There's so many barriers, so many formalities that get put in place, and we do that even in our, our expression of Christianity here in the West. But Lord, you desire to peel back all of those barriers in such a way that we get to relate with you personally. You teach us, Lord, how to pray. And yet, even in the words of this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, gosh, it feels, it feels distant. It almost feels too grandiose to utter and, and really mean it. So it's our prayer, God, in this time together that the teaching of your word would speak deeply to our hearts, that you would help reorient us around the reality of these words and your desire to make them truly a reality in our lives. So, Lord, illuminate uh, your truths for us. May we leave this place uh, with a deeper awareness of all that you have for us, God. In your name, amen. Okay, so we have this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We have this second stanza of it, which I just want to name from the outset. As you read it, as you consider it, it might seem a little bit ridiculous to say. It might appear to be wishful thinking or at worst entirely disconnected from us personally. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wishful thinking and kind of disconnected. Let me tell you why I think that. Why wishful thinking? Well, how many of you would say that when you sort of think about heaven, whatever your conception of that might be, and then you think about the state of the world, how many would say, yeah, pretty spot on? Like, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? So there's countless examples of this. I'm just going to name a few of the ways that I think that... um, Maybe we're falling a little bit short of that to be true. Um, Don't know if you noticed, the Earth's climate is in fact rapidly changing at such a rate that scientists tell us uh, without drastic reform to our way of living is going to significantly alter the living conditions of our planet even in our lifetime. So there's that. Um, Already there's more climate refugees in the world today than ever before people having to flee their home country because they're no long, the living conditions there are no longer suitable. Let's move on to a different topic. There's 153 million orphans in the world today. That means 153 million children living with at least one biological parent not in the picture at all. If you look at our own city and other cities around the country, we're experiencing this phenomenon called church vacancy. Church vacancy. And that phenomenon... Uh, uh, essentially means that there's traditional church buildings, not so unlike this one, that on Sunday mornings are left largely vacant as people are seeking community and connection elsewhere outside of the church. Church vacancy. There's, in our city, many of whom are here on Lake City and others on Aurora Avenue near Bethany Green Lake, um, Citywide, 40,000 people and counting that are living unhoused or in unstable living shelter conditions. 
in Scripture, the kingdom is said to be a reality as much now in the present as in the future. But is it really? How can that be? And why might this prayer seem utterly disconnected from us personally? Well, I don't know about you, but when I think of things like the kingdom of heaven and God's will, I'm hesitant at best to believe that little old me has anything to do with that. What about you? Do you feel that way? Right? Even if I could accept that I'm chosen as a broken vessel to participate in this calling, it still feels far and beyond my grasp of my family's grasp, my community's grasp, our church's grasp, let alone Bethany and its six locations as a church. It feels far and beyond the the big C church's grasp. If everyone were to get their act together and work together towards this goal, it seems too far off, does it not? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so at best, it might feel like this prayer is wishful thinking, or totally disconnected. Like, where's my place in the story? Where is my place in this prayer? And so how then is this prayer to be something other than those two things? How are we to reclaim it and when we say it, to mean it and see ourselves in this part of how we are taught by Jesus to pray? That's the question on the table for this morning. So let's start with this first. I, I have the, in your outline um, these three pieces of the Lord's Prayer I've broken up in terms of longings, as I think they each represent different longings. And one of the reasons I say that is because as we pray, this is a series on prayer, our hearts become shaped around the heart of God. So we need to understand what is it that is encapsulated in the heart of God in these three pieces, and then allow ourselves to grow a longing for those, okay? So let's start with this first one, this first longing that, God, your kingdom would come. And its meaning, of course, for us is this notion of shalom, total love, total justice, and total peace. Now, interestingly, the kingdom of God is one of the topics Jesus talks most about throughout the Gospels. Do you know this? In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, 13, Jesus has an entire series of parables, we heard some of them, that speak of what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus states in Luke 4, 43, that the, quote, mission statement for his ministry is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He speaks repeatedly about uh, who makes up the kingdom. In his Sermon on the Mount, he famously states in what has become known as the Beatitudes, this famous line, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Then in Matthew 21, he challenges the religious elite, and he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And then finally, in his sort of crowning achievement, if you will, the culmination of his ministry on earth, Jesus is given a crown. But it's not this sort of bejeweled crown. It's one of thorns. And his throne, if you will, is a cross. A cross upon which he'll be crucified. So what kind of kingdom is this kingdom of God? Or this kingdom of heaven? See, it challenged the understanding of ancient Israel, of all sectors of society. 
It challenged the Jews, people who were early followers of Jesus, as well as religious leaders of the day. And friends, hear this. It should challenge us as well. It should challenge us as well. If you're not feeling challenged throughout this message, I'm not doing a good job. You can throw things at me or something. So first, at a very basic level, the language of kingdom can be challenging for us. Can it not? Like, recently, we've seen a whole lot in the news about kingdom or monarchy uh, in England. Have we not? There's been some news about the queen and things like that. So maybe that's as close as we can get to really understanding this notion of kingdom or of a monarchy. Like here in the West, or in much of the world, we have, you know, democracy, we have presidents, we have, you know, local government, we have global alliances, but we don't have like kings and queens so much. So let's talk a little bit about kingdom in the context of Jesus's day. How are we to understand this notion of kingdom, the kingdom of God, in our reality today. See, the ancient world, particularly in Jesus' time, was ruled by an empire, the Roman Empire, in which Caesar was king, which at the time connotated not only the highest human authority, but also God-like authority. So people were literally meant to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And so with this sort of backdrop in mind, we can begin to interpret some of the significance of what Jesus means when he uses this language of kingdom. So we're going to look at this kingdom in terms of three different pieces here, still within this first point. We're going to look at what it's said to be like, what this kingdom of God is said to be like, who is there, like, okay, cool, who's actually in it, and then finally, how, it, how it's ruled. Okay, so we're going to look at what it's like, who's there, and how it's ruled. So first, what it's like. We heard some of these texts read for us. In contrast to the Roman Empire and its sort of grandiose architecture that, in many cases, was built on the backs of slave labor, violence against other people groups in the name of rule and expansion, Jesus says in Matthew 13, that which we heard read, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. It's also said that the kingdom of God is like yeast for the leavening of bread, the essential ingredient that unlocks the potential to rise and nourish and satisfy the hunger of many. And then third, it's said that the kingdom of God is like good seed, sown in a field among weeds, outlasting and chosen above the rest. So we've got seeds, mustard, and yeast. Like, is God hungry? You know? Uh, I'm going to suggest to us that we refer from this point forward as the kingdom, as God's um, pretzel kingdom, right? Got all the ingredients we need there for that. So what's the meaning of this pretzel kingdom? See, the kingdom of God is not said to be like a great army or like a powerful ruler or prestigious social club. Rather, it's said to be a place of nourishment, slowly growing over time for the well-being of all of creation. People, nature, like trees and animals, birds of the air, living in harmony with one another. All of creation living in harmony. This notion of all of creation is really important as we look now at who is in the kingdom. 
who is in the kingdom. Listen as I read from Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Son, go, work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But really, he did not go. So which of the two did the will of his father, they said? The first, Jesus said to them. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you, John the Baptist, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Okay, two important things to gather here. First is this. What is needed to enter the kingdom of God? And then second, we're going to get to the second one in a second. Stay tuned. So one, what is needed to enter the kingdom of God? Is it a perfect resume? Doesn't appear to be that. How about seminary education? Or nobility? High moral character? Just the right words? Prestigious social circles? Parental approval? A good job? Housing? Money? Is it any of these things? Did you see that in the text? You can respond. No. No. It's none of those. It's one thing. One requirement is given. What was it? Belief. Belief in who Jesus says that he is. Who John came proclaiming about him before. Before him, the Old Testament prophets and the law. But hear this, friends. This is so important. As a participant, as a citizen of the kingdom, it's only one thing. It's Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. So by this standard, the prostitutes and tax collector, by virtue of their belief, found themselves to be citizens of the kingdom of God. The religious elite who resisted the reality of who Jesus said that he was, they found themselves standing at a distance. So our religiosity is not a precursor for our citizenship in heaven. Uh, We've got mustard seeds, other tiny seeds, yeast, so pretzel heaven, and now we have prostitutes and tax collectors. This is looking good, right? Is this really the heaven that Israel longed for? Can you imagine They've longed for someone to come and conquer the oppressive Roman Empire to bring about the great nation of Israel, the people of God, and we have pretzels and outcasts. Is this the heaven that you and I long for? Is it? My wife and I do flying trapeze. Does anyone anyone know what that is? Do you have a concept of that? Okay. About five years ago, we ran off to the circus together, and we've never been the same since. We literally run off to the circus by night. I'm not making this up. And um, when we first went, it was on a double date with another couple from Bethany, and we thought, oh, we'll try something one time. That'll be cool. 
And it was. It was super cool. And I got in the car and was like, babe, that was awesome. And she was like, this is going to be our thing. <laughs> like, she was so into And she was like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Here's my wife, Macy, right here, if you didn't know. And I credit her with all of my circus sermon analogies. So here we go. Um, it's so tr- The flying trapeze is a blast. If you haven't done it, you can come do it. I'm an instructor. I'll teach you all the ropes. It's great. Um, but... It wasn't just the act itself, though it was sort of beautiful and captivating and and an adrenaline rush and so much fun, but really what was the glue that kept Macy and I going back time and time and time again was the community. This was an amazing, amazing community. Literally people from all walks of life, all different ages, different parts of the world, different genders, sexuality, identity. Literally, if there's like a cultural niche that you know of in the world that you're like, surely there's no one else like that. For sure they're in the circus, without question. And so this community has just been, it was just amazing. And I felt honestly some self-consciousness about the fact that I was a pastor. In part because I didn't want that to somehow become a barrier in relationship. For sure didn't know any other Christians and still to this day only have met one other Christian in the whole circus community, which is getting bigger as the longer that we're in it. And so I was sort of hesitant to bring that up. Um, It was over a year, I think, before I ever sort of divulged, like, I'm a pastor, to anyone. And I was shocked at how well-received it was. And I shouldn't have been shocked. Because everyone in the circus welcomes just about anybody, regardless of who they are, what they believe, what they, whatever. And so they're like, oh, you are? That's awesome. So you're a priest. And I was like, not exactly a priest. And they're like, okay, tell me where am I? And they just... They were so curious. And, and before I knew it, I was like, I almost feel more comfortable in my own skin, in my own sense of vocation here, than honestly some of the Christian circles that I run in. Because sometimes in Christian circles, it can be, oh, well, what do you believe about gay marriage? Oh, you believe that? Okay, we're done. Right? Or what do you believe about this or that or whatever it may be? Ascribe to my way of thinking about God and you're in. But here in the circus community, it was like, I don't have the first clue about God, but cool. A couple questions people have asked me that just really highlight for me. One, someone said to me, um, which of the Bibles do you read? I was like, well, there's one Bible. The Bible has many books, and they were done. They were like, so there's lots of Bible books? What are you talking about? That was one. Second question that someone asked me was, and this was convicting. This was convicting. We were at our house. We were having this barbecue. People were on the back deck. It was cool. And, and sort of gather in a circle, and, and they're like, so Nathan, let's come back to this whole you're a priest thing. And I'm like, I'm not a priest. <laughs> and they're like, so you think you know God? I was like, to you, that probably sounds so ridiculous. And I was like, yes. And they were like, tell me about him. Crazy, Right? Some of the best conversations around faith have happened in the context of this community that on the surface couldn't be the furthest from it. And the reason I tell you this story is to illustrate that while it can feel true that that notion of a kingdom of God where Silas was talking about this last week, the great our, our Father in heaven, a a true community of people, anyone, Jesus plus nothing, that idea has become real to me through the circus. And I'm not saying that everyone in the circus is saved or something like that in some universal kind of way. What I'm saying is that 
these people get it. There's something about our innate need for another and curiosity about difference that characterizes the circus community in such a way that I actually feel like I've witnessed this aspect of the kingdom of God in ways that I sometimes don't even see it in the church. You can imagine my astonishment when uh, I came to find out that a man by the name of Henry Nouwen, great theologian, if you don't know him, one of my absolute favorites, himself ran away to the circus. Did you know that? Late in his life, Henry Nouwen went and saw a flying trapeze act, was so captivated by it, that he went and toured with this flying trapeze troupe for months. How crazy is that? He wrote a book about it. And it, he died before he could finish it, so someone else finished it on his behalf. It's so awesome. And I want to read you a quote because I think um, he, just, he summarizes this so well. He says this, and this is sort of his first experience witnessing the flying trapeze act. The 10 minutes that followed somehow gave me a glimpse of a world that had eluded me so far. A world of discipline and freedom, diversity and harmony, risk and safety, individuality and community, and most of all, flying and catching. The trapeze act gave rise to a desire in me that no other art form could evoke. The desire to belong to a community of love that can break through the boundaries of ordinariness. This, friends, is what the kingdom is all about. A community of love that breaks through the boundaries of ordinariness. Amen? That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. So let's cap off this first point regarding the nature of kingdom with a look at its ruler. How is this kingdom of God led? Well, we have a bit of insight into what it's like, right? Seeds and little tiny stuff that grows slowly. We know who is there, the people that supposedly shouldn't be. So how about its ruler? Well, what's the classic Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus is the ruler, right? But how did Jesus rule? How did he lead? Does he lead? Towards the end of his ministry, he'd grown pretty popular, right? Crowds would follow him to the point that he and his disciples were literally pressed up against the shore and had to get in a boat to go away. They, could, they, were, they were getting pushed into the sea. That's how big the crowds were. There wasn't enough food to go around to satisfy all of the people who came to hear him speak, and so supernatural provision had to happen just so people could eat, have a snack, and keep listening to his teaching. Sick and lame people were being healed left and right. Demons were being cast out. Jesus was showing that he had authority over all evil, But even here, at the pinnacle of his popularity, if you will, Jesus in Luke 4 is seen leaving the crowd intentionally, going away to pray, have time with the Father. And it's out of this intimacy with the Father that Jesus is reminded of his mission. And so he comes back and he says to his disciples, it's time to go. Because I have come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also. I was sent for this purpose. So contrary to all conventional wisdom, Jesus doesn't capitalize on his moment, right? To, you know, imagine this crowd and then everyone tweets and follows and then the next crowd. No, he says, I gotta go. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. 
So when convicted at the end of his ministry on earth of a crime that he didn't commit, he doesn't organize a coup. He doesn't lash out violently or exercise power sort of to free himself or subdue the corrupt rulers of the time, though he certainly could have done that. Instead, he accepts a crown of thorns. And he accepts a throne that is a cross. Crowned and seated here, he absorbs the hatred and evil of the world so that you and I don't have to. We don't have to suffer the consequences ultimately of these things because Jesus chose to let that come upon himself, though he had no reason to have to do that. As a result of this, one day every knee will bow. Every, every tongue will confess that not Caesar, not Biden or your financial plan, retirement plan, your way of thinking, none of those things, but Jesus is Lord. Friends, the kingdom of God is a place of satisfaction, of nourishment, and of growth where all of creation can fulfill its God-given potential, living in harmony together. It's a kingdom full of people from all walks of life who know their human limitations and lean into this simple yet life-changing invitation to make Jesus Lord of all of their lives. One who rules in total love, brings complete peace, and will wipe away the tear from every eye, giving a joy only life with him can. Friends, this is shalom. This is the kingdom of God, and you are invited. Is that an invitation that you would receive willingly? I would. This brings us to our second longing that we're going to explore today, this notion of your will be done, meaning your kingdom, God, be made a reality. Be made a reality. So let's pause for a second. This all sounds great, does it not? This picture of the kingdom that we've sort of painted sounds all right. But it still sounds like a far cry from our experience here on earth, doesn't it? How do we close that gap? Logically, perhaps this notion of God's kingdom is just describing a future hope. That would be much easier, wouldn't it? Like, okay, that sounds beautiful. I get it. We're going to die. We're going to go to heaven, and then we'll experience that. Unfortunately, Scripture doesn't let us off that easy. Honestly, I wish that it did because I could finish the message right now and say, you know, believe in Jesus, punch your belief in Jesus plus nothing card and wait till you die and go to heaven and it'll be great. It'll be worth it. Just endure between now and then. But here in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is already among you. It's among us, friends. When we pray, your will be done, what we are praying is for the king, that the kingdom of God would be made a reality in our midst today, right here and right now. In our neighborhoods, in the cities that we call home in the broken and beautiful church that we worship in, among the most starved, 
broken, beaten, oppressed, and corrupt places in our world, that this kingdom, one of shared flourishing and shalom for all, would be made a reality in those places. So, as I was writing this sermon, I literally said this to myself out loud. Okay, prove it. Like, is this actually happening? Or is this just old words in a book? Which of the Bibles, right? If we're supposed to be praying this, when I scan the world around me, the first thought that comes to mind is, God, you're not doing a very good job holding up your side of the bargain of making it true. Former uh, senior pastor here at Bethany, Richard Dahlstrom, uses this language of snapshots of the kingdom. I don't know if some of you might have heard that before. These sort of glimpses of God's reign in the world today. I want to tell you a story of a snapshot of the kingdom that I got to experience. I told you I'm the pastor of mission here at Bethany. One of the things that has me doing is traveling to visit our global partners on a regular basis. One of our global partners is in Rwanda. We've partnered in Rwanda for about 13 years now with the organization World Relief. We started around this notion of um, equipping churches, local churches, to be united together and together address um, the kind of different challenges facing their communities, the context of poverty in which they found themselves. And so this idea of local churches upon a foundation of unity being the solution to poverty in their communities. And we started with 10 churches. That network of churches over the last 13 years has grown to over 150, impacting over 150,000 people. If you give to Bethany, a portion of what you give makes that work possible. It's pretty cool, right? And I get to travel back and forth and, and, and do this. But it's not just about the money. It's not just that we give and then the good work that they do and steward that. It's really at its heart and soul, a, a core part of everything that we do in mission at Bethany is relational. It has to be relational. Because we believe that anything that we're called to do or be a part of in the world is because we can experience transformation together. And so I take this really seriously in the work. And one of the things that I do is I try to assess, is this mutual transformation Happening? Are we as a community here at Bethany actually being impacted as much by the work happening in Rwanda as they're impacted by our giving of funds and, and encouragement and prayer over the years? And I'm happy to share with you a little anecdote that I think um, suggests that yes, this is at least in some ways happening. This is uh, the photo that you saw was of me and a dear friend of mine named Buende. Buende is a pastor and, and, and sort of elder in the community of Musanze, which is where Bethany partners. And uh, Buende has become known to me as Papa Buende. Um, If you don't know my story a little bit, my dad passed tragically about four years ago, and uh, it was shortly after that that I went and visited Rwanda on one of my many visits. And Buende is a father to many orphans throughout the community and this kind of thing, and he sort of took me under his wing, and in his limited English, he practiced this phrase, and he gave me a big hug when he first saw me, and he said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And in that moment, I said, Papa Buende. That's that big fatherly bear hug that, that, that he can, only he can really deliver. And so uh, I tell you that he, I call him Papa Buende because uh, I was given an opportunity this last August when I was there to go and um, 
kind of see the work in a lot of the communities. I traveled with a friend who's also a local pastor at another church here on Aurora in Seattle named Hayden. And Hayden and I have taken seriously the work that we do of uniting local churches to serve the most vulnerable in Rwanda here in Seattle. And so we together have built a network of local churches on a similar model that would ourselves be equipped by a local partner of Bethany, Aurora Commons, and together serve those living unhoused in ways that maybe the church can only do. So this has been amazing work. It's directly inspired by the work in Rwanda. And so I said, Hayden, come see the work in Rwanda. And, and uh, I just I have to believe that God will continue to inspire us and guide us through that. They are our teachers for this work. And so um, we go and we're seeing the work. It's all good. And, and, and finally, at the end of our time there, they, the staff of World Relief, they're all Rwandese. They invite us to their um, new office. They're so excited about it. They've got it all decked out and this kind of thing. And it's this big celebration. And they, at the kind of the, the end of it, they invite us to come and they say, Nathan, we want you to sit in the middle. And I was like, oh, good grief. All right. They're going to like pray for me or something. And I hate that. And, no, not really. And um, they, they're, they're sitting around, and they say, Nathan, we want to thank you for, uh, and really thank Bethany for all of the investment. And this is the first visit. We couldn't go for a couple years, right, with the pandemic. We'd never missed a year visit up until that point. So it was really significant um, to be back. And they just said, we've been longing to see you. And so they said, what we want to do is we want to give you a name. I was like, well, I have a name. My name's Nathan. And they said, no, we want to give you a Rwandan name. And they communicated the significance of that is to say, we see you as one of us. And so I was super taken aback, like, wow. And they went about performing this naming ceremony that they do for any new child born in Rwanda. And the way that they do this naming ceremony is they invite the community to come together, and everyone from the community suggests a name. And then the elder of the community chooses the most fitting name for that person, right? You can imagine, like, like, this could take a long time, right? That's kind of what I was thinking in the moment. And, um, but the whole community didn't come. It was just these staff. So it was like 10 or 15 people. And we see that, and everyone goes around, and they start to share these names. And they would say why they think they're significant. It literally feels like the most epic affirmation circle you've ever been a part of, Right? They're saying things you're like, no, no, please. That's too much, right? And so finally they land on the name and, 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 and enter Papa Buende again. He's the elder in this scenario. So Papa Buende got to decide my name. And so he takes all the names. He goes away. He and his wife, they decide together what it's going to be and they come back. And they say, Nathan, your name is going to be Bigui. Bigui. And I was like, all right, what does that mean? And they said, that means achiever. Achievement for all that God has achieved in Rwanda on behalf of Bethany Community Church. You are the face of Bethany, and so we want you to go back with this name and tell Bethany all that has been accomplished in Rwanda. <sighs> Amazing, right? So I'm telling you that now. Awesome. <laughs> and beyond that, and I've, I've shared this story in many different contexts, but this is a piece that I haven't shared, and I feel like it's so fitting, especially on the heels of what Silas shared with you all last week about this notion of our... Hayden is sitting there while this is happening. And she's like, this is so, see, like long-term relationship. Nathan's gone back and forth for a decade and blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, Hayden, your turn. And she's like, come on. Like, that's not appropriate. I just met you guys. Blah, blah. And they're like, no, no, you have to come. You too are family because you came with Nathan who represents Bethany. 
So she goes in the middle. They do the whole thing again. The name they land on for Hayden is Uwachu. And Uwacho, Uwachu means ours. And a little bit of Hayden's story is that she, for a long time, has felt estranged to even her notion of church and, and the calling that she has as a pastor. But she, she does it because she believes that at her, at her core, that's who she's called to be. She came on this trip reluctantly, thinking, I don't know if that really, can I? And I said, no, you, you have a role to play in this. And in that moment, she fell apart, and she reflected back to me later in a place in a, that she could have felt more estranged than you could ever imagine, a random group of Rwandese that she's known for a handful of days, she felt more at home and seen and welcomed as a part of the greater thing that God is doing in the world than maybe ever before. Hayden, you're ours. And so I share this story with you to say this, friends. In small ways and big, these are snapshots of the kingdom. They're ways that God is using people his church in Rwanda, inspiring our work here in Seattle to provide glimpses of God's reign in the world now, in our midst, and yet to come. See, giving me this name showed me that I am one of them. Any dividing walls that existed, whether distance or culture or language or socioeconomic status, all of those had come down. They said, we belong to one another. And to Hayden, they said, you too. You don't just belong, you are ours. This is a snapshot of the kingdom. Our partnership with World Relief and the Rwandese has shaped who I am, how I am, and what I do in the world. You too, friends, are invited to make snapshots like this possible when you're willing to let someone else in so much that you identify with them, however different they may be. When you as a community take seriously the invitation to actually be local, contextual, relational ministry, the vision that this site was founded upon in this community of Lake City, the doors blow open. There's no, you know, maybe the AC or heating bill will go up, but like literally people are coming and going because they so identify with this place as a place of love, a place, a loving community that breaks through the boundaries of ordinariness. That's what we're called to. It's our belief in Jesus being who he says he is that distinguishes us as citizens of the kingdom, but as citizens, we are meant to participate with God in making the kingdom real, visible in the world around us. And we're gonna finish with this, this notion of on earth as it is in heaven, in our midst. See, when left to our own devices, our prayers can so easily be reduced to wish lists for God, can they not? Without this notion of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we pray that with only ourselves in mind, we're just asking to perpetuate our own personal kingdoms. So often in our prayers, right, we say, heal this loved one of mine. Fix this situation in my life. Calm my anxiety. These are all good prayers. They, in many ways, reflect the heart of God, the will of the Father, if you will. But the question is, are we allowing our prayers to on a regular basis be oriented around God's notion of kingdom? 
the great hour, praying for the people that we would rather talk about in a not-so-nice way because of what they believe or how they act. Remember that I said these three pieces of this prayer represent longings. That's the point of prayer, that our longings would be shaped around the longings, the heart of the Father. Such that all of creation, through our prayers together, could reflect this notion of shalom, that we could experience shalom together. And so friends, the Bible tells us for those who believe the fullness of Christ, heaven itself dwells within us. Christian life is not so much about earning your way or doing just right enough or good enough in the world to make us worthy of Christ, of heaven out there when we die. Rather, it's about peeling away these layers of our hearts, of our lives, that, in, that inhibit the fullness of God from bursting through us, overflowing to the world around us. It's in this way that the kingdom of God, like a seed, containing all of this built-up, latent potential to give root to amazing trees of life, of fruit, can come about in the world around us. Amen? Okay, we're going to finish with this invitation and response. So I think at this time I can invite the worship team up. Is that the next thing that's happening? Very good. And what I want to do is, and I understand that you guys as a community are both a praying community and you're willing to do a little like call and response stuff. Is that right? Can we do that together? Let's give it a try. I don't get to do this at Green Lake, so this is like, you know, it's kind of fun. What I want to do is invite us to do this. I want to pray each of these three pieces of this stands of the Lord's Prayer. And after each one, so your kingdom come, for example. There's going to be a question posed on the screen. And I want you to respond to that question audibly, out loud, if you'd be so bold, in just a word, a couple words, no more. And so that we can respond to this invitation together as a community. So what I'm going to do is uh, invite us to pray the part in bold as a group, out loud. Say together, your kingdom come. And then you'll see the question. I'll, I'll pose the question in prayer and then you all can respond. And then we'll read the second one together out loud and then respond to that question. And then thirdly, we'll say that phrase together and respond to that next question. Okay? Let's respond and worship together. Let's pray together this first piece of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. What of God's kingdom do you long for? Let's respond in prayer. Amen. And the second piece, your will be done. What of your will, your longings, need to be reoriented around the will of God? Let's respond in prayer. Selfishness. And this third piece, on earth as it is in heaven, 
Where do you long for God's kingdom of shalom to come? Let's name it, friends, in prayer. Lake City. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the invitation to pray for your kingdom. A good kingdom, Lord, that flips all of our expectations on its head and invites us to be participants in it. We don't need a good resume. We don't need to have said just the right thing. We just need to be and to believe in who you say that you are. And so, Lord, in in humility, we ask that we could be people who believe, that we'd be mobilized as participants in your kingdom work, and that together we could make snapshots of your kingdom visible, such that the great challenges of our world are true. We don't ignore them. We lean into them, believing that our call is to be a redemptive force right in the midst So Lord, make us people that are attuned to both the brokenness and the beauty that is your kingdom. Open our eyes, we pray, evermore to the role that we have to play in it. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.